If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We are beginning our new series of looking at the Bible book by book and following the advice of that great theologian, Julie Andrews. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Genesis is at the beginning of the Bible for good reason. It is called the book of beginnings. It is there that, frankly, everything does begin. It is in the book of Genesis that we see the beginnings of every major storyline, every major doctrine in Christian theology. If there is uh, any character at all in the scriptures, ultimately, whether they're in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you can in some way trace them back to an event that has occurred uh, in the book of Genesis. Here we see the beginning of creation, the human race, sin, God's covenant people, Israel, and ultimately the church. We see the first promises of the coming of Christ as the Savior of the world. Genesis is foundational for all that comes later in the rest of the storyline of the Bible. It lays a foundation for all of our beliefs and all of our practices. And so with that in mind, this morning we want to come and we want to seek to understand this book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. And we want to do so by looking through the lens of one text in Genesis chapter 12. And I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed to the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai at the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. May God bless the reign of his word. Emerging both, both explicitly and implicitly from this passage are three themes that I think we can see forming not only the larger structure of the book of Genesis, but also the larger framework for the, the Bible's storyline. And so these are the three things that we want to, the three themes that we want to understand this morning, and specifically understanding them, we not only want to see how they fit into the larger uh, story that God is writing in His Scriptures, but we also want to see what difference these themes make in our lives today. How it is that we ourselves are part of these uh, larger themes and how they're being worked out in our lives. So the first thing that we want to see is the theme of creation. The theme of creation. The chapter begins with the words, Now the Lord said to Abram. Now, if you, if you were reading a novel of any kind, uh, right there you would be saying, What? Who are these people? Who is this person called the Lord? Why is he talking to this person named Abram? Who are these people? Where do they come from? Uh, we're jumping right in the middle of a story here. Well, uh, that's because Moses, who penned the book of Genesis under the inspiration of God, assumes that you've already read the first 11 chapters. 
He assumes that you already know who the Lord and Abram is. And this is the, the way he just jumps in there. But in the context of this message, we have not yet read the first few chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. Nevertheless, what we need to do is to see those chapters as foundational for this story. And so then implicitly in these opening words, the Lord said to Abram, we want to, to flesh out our first theme that we see here. And ultimately, it's a theme of creation. And we see two things here. First, the Lord's creation. The Lord's creation. The Bible is clear that creation didn't happen by itself. The universe has not been eternally existent. Life was not produced by random chance processes over eons of time. The Bible is very clear in the very first verse, the very first chapter, the very first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, hopefully you're learning that on, on Sunday evenings in your community groups. Uh, if not, then I don't know what videos you're watching and we should talk later, okay? But uh, th this is being fleshed out for us in larger ways. But here, we just need to pause and say, you know, it's very hard for us to get our minds on the fact that at one time, there was nothing but God. There was no universe. You know, we, we tend to, you know, at least when I was little, I would say, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so I'm thinking, you know... Um, you know, before then, okay, there's no earth, but he made the stars. There's no stars. There's this black canvas of deep space. Well, no, there wasn't. There wasn't even that. I mean, we, we don't know what it looked like, but there was nothing there, nothing at all except for God. And then he decided to create. And out of nothing, God produced something. It was very much like the old rabbit out of the magic heck trick, trick except, as one theologian says, God didn't have a rabbit and he didn't even use a hat. He, there was nothing there, and yet he spoke. And as we sing, light and life obeyed. They leaped into existence out of nothing. And over the course of six days, God spoke into existence matter and energy, light and darkness, air and water, earth and vegetation, birds, fish, and animals. But the very crown of his creation, we are told, was humanity itself. It is the pinnacle because unlike everything else he has created, he has said, I am making man in my image. Humanity is made the image of God, and as His image bearers, they were to care for and rule over the rest of creation. And at the end of the first week in human history, God stepped back, as it were, and looked at His handiwork as the creator and maker of all things and said, this is good. This is very good. But it didn't stay that way for very long. The second thing we see in this theme of creation is humanity's rebellion. Humanity's rebellion, despite his goodness to Adam and Eve, giving them everything they could imagine, even his own direct presence, they failed to trust and obey the Lord. Only one tree was, was forbidden to them. Out of the thousands of plants and trees that bore fruit and vegetables of all kinds, that were all very good, you know, today sometimes we eat a vegetable and we go, oh, who could eat that thing? It is bitter and nasty. And that was not the case then. You know, I mean, I believe bad vegetables are a result of the fall. I mean, right? I mean, isn't that certainly where they come from? But you can imagine just walking through the garden and picking up this thing and, oh, that's great. And picking up, oh, it's nice and sweet. And picking up this. And just anything they could possibly imagine as they're walking through the garden, anything was theirs. And God said, except this one tree. Just one. Out of the thousands. Don't eat from this one or you will die. Instead of trusting in God's goodness, instead of obeying His rule over them, they believed the lies of the devil himself and ate from the tree. 
And the result was the invasion of sin into God's good creation. Sin that ultimately brought a curse down upon not just humanity, but all of creation itself. And that sinful rebellion of our first parents didn't end with our first parents, but became the pattern of humanity for decades to come. In fact, it's only a couple hundred years after God creates everything that we read in chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man... He saw that it was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin so marred creation, so marred humanity that God goes on to say, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm wiping out humanity and I'm going to do so by wiping out all of the earth. I'm essentially starting over with creation. And yet the Bible says, Noah, one man, found grace in the sight of the Lord. And God tells Noah, take your family. I'm going to send the animals to you. You take two of most kinds, some of, of, of uh, more of other kinds, and you're all going to construct, or you, Noah, are going to construct this large ark, this large ship that will carry you through the global flood that's going to come to wipe everything out. And through you that I save, through judgment, I will repopulate the earth. I will repopulate humanity. And that's exactly what happened. And yet even after God's judgment through the global flood that He sent upon the earth and the repopulation of the world by those that were on the ark, humanity continued to sin. In fact, Moses writes and he wants to let us know that things are not going to be that much different. Not long after the floodwaters recede and Noah and his family begin to till the ground and to replant vegetation and all kinds of other things, we find that Noah was cultivating a vineyard. And when the grapes were ripe, he got drunk. He sinned. And we're immediately shown, though humanity has had a chance to restart, humanity is still sinful. In fact, though they were given the command through Noah, just like Adam and Eve, to multiply and spread out and subdue the entire earth, humanity decided not to do that. And in chapter 11 we read the people saying, the leaders of humanity saying, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God says, multiply, have kids, spread out, rule over, and tend all of creation, just like I told your first parents. They say, no, we don't want to do that, God. We want to stay together, and we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be great among the earth. In fact, we want to be so great, we're going to conspire together to build a tower and ascend to heaven itself. Assuming they could have done that, we have to wonder, what would they have said when they come face to face with God who made them? The result of their sin was another global judgment from God. This time, however, God did not destroy humanity. He simply confused them. The God who brought order out of chaos at the beginning now takes order and brings chaos to it. At this point, there was only one spoken language. Humanity only had one language. And God says, if you're not going to obey me and spread out among the face of the earth, then I'll make you obey me. And so this guy over here, he creates by divine fiat a whole new language in his mind. And over here, a lady, the same thing. And over here, uh, and over here, and over here, and over here. So suddenly, they're once working, and past the hammer becomes iktok. The other person says, what? what? He says, yeah, okay. I don't understand what you're saying here. And they start walking around and they're looking. Who speaks the same language? What's going on? And they find this person speaks the same language and this family and this family. And so they gather together and they go off and start their own civilization. And this group over here speaks this language and they go over there and God says, look, I am the sovereign. And if you won't do it willingly, you'll do it under my hand. And this is what he does. 
He scatters humanity that they might serve him the way that he has asked them to. And the question is, why all this sin? Why all this rebellion against God's authority? Well, the Bible is clear, looking back on what is taking place in these chapters, that when Adam fell, we all fell. Adam fell as our representative, and so we all fell in him. Now humanity is born sinful. And sometimes we have a hard time getting our minds around it, but the astonishing thing that, that I found out is that in previous generations, this was taught to children at very young ages. For a hundred years or more, there was a book called The English Primer. And if you were learning the English language, this was the book that you used to learn it from. And in trying to teach the letters A and X, it used a very simple nursery rhyme based on very weighty truths. Here was the nursery rhyme. See if you can understand what it's saying. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. You see what it's teaching the kids there? Because Adam sinned, all of humanity is now born sinners. And just as Adam was promised the judgment of death for his sin, so now all of humanity in their sin will face death. And whether you're the great Babylonian king like Xerxes or whether you're a nobody like me, the judgment is the same because we're all in Adam. We are all his descendants. That's the judgment that has come to us. That's the reason why there is this innate desire to rebel against God in our sin. And the result is judgment. Judgment. And yet, even in that first sin, God gave a glimmering hope of grace, of redemption and forgiveness. He told the first woman and the first man that from them one day a descendant would come and he would ultimately vanquish the serpent who led them astray and he would rid the world forever from sin. This promised descendant we find out later was none other than God his own son, Jesus Christ, who would come and suffer God's judgment in our place that we might live. And what we see even in Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 12 and on and on and on is God conspiring all of the events of human history to accomplish that one feat. The bringing about of the redemption of all of creation through the promised Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. And part of the way He does this is by calling out people from a sinful world, redeeming them and, and leading them to serve Him in special ways. And this is the second theme that we see in our passage this morning. And that is the theme of calling. Creation was first and now we see calling. In fact, really, this theme of calling is what our passage is directly and immediately about, the calling of Abram to the purposes of God. At the end of chapter 11, if we were reading through Genesis, we would see the line of descent from Noah's son, Shem, to a man by the name of Terah. And Terah had, himself had three sons, one of whom was named Abram, and God would eventually change it to Abraham. And here's what we, here's what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country that your kindred and your father's house, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, under this theme of calling, we see two things. First, we see the Lord's grace the Lord's grace. Back in chapter 11, reading about Terah and Abram and where they come from, this is what we read. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. 
Now, what is it saying? It's saying that Abram grows up in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then he goes and he settles, on, or is going on his way to the land of Canaan, and then stops and settles in Haran. Now, you say, well, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is that we need to understand Abraham is raised as a pagan. Abraham's not raised as a believer. In fact, it's, it's for the first time since the fall of Babel that in this line of descent we don't see anything about so-and-so called upon the name of the Lord. Before that was standard fare. It was so we would see the line of godly descent that is working its way through the world that God is using to bring about the promised son. And here we don't see that at all. Abraham is raised again as a pagan worshiping false gods. You say, well, that's kind of an inference, is it? Well, it is, but it's a biblical inference because later Joshua, a mighty commander over the people of Israel, would remind them of where they came from and their need for faithfulness. In Joshua 24, here's what he says, quoting the Lord God of Israel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. What is Joshua telling us? Joshua is telling us Abram was not raised a believer. Abraham did not know the one true and living God the way that one who places their faith in him would know him. Instead, he was an idolater. And it's important we understand there were people that knew the living God. We know the book of Job, though written much later, the events took place sometime in this patriarchal age, either shortly before Abraham or shortly after Abraham. In just a few chapters, Abraham himself is going to meet that great king and priest of the city of Salem. One day will become Jerusalem, Melchizedek. And what does he do? He's a priest in the worship of the one true God, Yahweh the Lord. And in fact, Abraham worships the Lord through him by paying him tribute. So we know there are people during this time that know the Lord. But what does God do? God calls Abraham instead. He doesn't use someone like a Job. He doesn't use someone like a Melchizedek. Abraham didn't deserve to be used by God. He did not deserve to be called out by him. In fact, it's not like God is saying, you know, that Abraham, he's a great man of faith. He's the guy that I want for me. No, no, no. You read the story. Abraham is not a great man of faith at the beginning. He becomes a great man of faith. He becomes a great man of faith as we're going to see in a minute. The promise, that the promise of, a, of a large family comes through one son and he's even willing to sacrifice that son believing somehow God will keep his promise and bring him back to life. But over the next few chapters, guess what? Abraham wavers in his faith horribly. All this is to say... The calling that comes to Abraham is not based on what Abraham does. It's not because he's a follower of Yahweh. It's not because he's a particular man of faith. It comes as an act of God's grace. God's grace alone. God is looking at Abraham and saying, Here is a sinner whom I will save. He's not earned that salvation. He doesn't deserve that salvation. But I will do it. And in fact, I will so save him and so bless him that through him all the other nations will be blessed. How many of you like grits? Some of you do. I tolerate grits. But one important lesson I learned, God's grace is like grits. They say, now what does that mean? Well, get in the way back machine, Mr. Peabody, and let's, let's go back to 
the 90s when Hurricane Andrew had blown through Florida and I was on my way down there with uh, my minister of music and some other people at my church for a mission trip to help rebuild a church. And on the way down, uh, number one, we were carrying a very large trailer, loaded down, completely with lumber and sound system equipment, so we had to stop like every 10 minutes for gas. Okay, it took a long time. It took like 24 hours to drive from Cincinnati to Homestead, nonstop. And uh, it, it, was, it was wild. But anyway, he had planned that we would stop to eat at a Cracker Barrel every time on the way down. He loved Cracker Barrel, okay? And so uh, that was the first time I'd ever actually been to a Cracker Barrel was on this trip, and it was ever the first time that I could remember driving in the South. And so I order breakfast the first time, uh, the biscuits and gravy and, the, and you know, the eggs and the bacon, and there's this bowl of this off-white mush. And I'm saying, what is this? I didn't order this. Do I have to pay for this? And, I, and, and Randy says, that, that's grits. Put some jelly in it or put some butter in it or put some salt and pepper in it. I tried everything. I didn't like it. And I said, but I, you know, what's the deal? He says, this is the South, John. You just get grits. You don't order it. You don't pay for it. You just get them. Now, I'm not a fond, fond of grits, but I'm fond of God's grace. And frankly, that's the way it comes to us. A lot of times we don't order it. We're not calling out asking for it, especially when we get saved. We certainly don't deserve it, and we didn't earn it. We didn't pay for it, and yet God brings it into our lives. Why? Because we need it to be made right with Him. And just as God, just as Abraham had not called out to the one true living God for grace, nevertheless, in His grace, God called out to Abraham. And He said, look, this is who I am, Abraham. I am your creator. I am not like all of the gods that you worship. I am not like all the gods in this pagan land of Canaan and Ur of the Chaldeans. I am Yahweh, the Lord. Worship me, serve me, follow me, and I will bless you. That's exactly what he did. And even today, God calls whom he wills according to his gracious and sovereign plan. And the response to that call that we should have today is the same response that Abraham had back then, and that was trusting God. In the theme of calling, we saw the Lord's grace, and now we need to see this second part, humanity's faith. Humanity's faith. This is Abraham's response, very simply put in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And at first, Abraham's faith in the Lord may seem like no big deal. After all, didn't God promise to bless him, to make his name great, to give him many descendants? Who wouldn't want that, right? No problem. Of course Abraham's going to follow the Lord. But did you consider the costs of following him? Did you catch what it is Abraham must first do in order to follow God? He says, you've got to make a complete break with your past. You're starting over, Abraham. You're starting over. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. What does he say to do? He says, leave everything behind. You leave the comfort and the familiarity and the security of your own country. You leave the love of your father. You leave the support of your family. You leave behind the worship of your false gods. You leave everything behind in order to follow me. Now it's not so obvious that he would obey, is it? Now it's not so easy to put your faith in God, to go. And even at this point, what does he say? Go to the land, I'll show you. He didn't tell him where the land is. He says, pack up and start walking this way. And I'll tell you when you get there. And what was Abraham's response? Abraham went and did as the Lord had told him. Abraham at that moment, no matter how small, no matter how imperfect, put his faith in the Lord, believing he had both the power and the desire to keep his promises. And that faith was ultimately evidenced in the fact that he did turn away from his previous life of sin. You say, how do we know that? Look at verse 6. 
What does it say? The end of verse 5, when they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. What is going on here? Shechem was a place, a vast place of idolatrous worship in Abraham's day. In fact, Moses wants us to realize this because he makes the point of saying the Canaanites were still in the land. And what are the Canaanites doing? They're worshiping their false gods with temple prostitutes. They're worshiping their false gods by offering their babies in temple sacrifice. And what does Abram do? He knows about all this. He knows about all this. He knows the vast idolatry here. And yet when he arrives at this place, God says, this is the land that I'm going to give you. So what does he do? He doesn't go back in his tent and say a little prayer. Thank you, God. What does he do? He exhibits his faith and his confidence. That though this land is not yet his, it does not yet belong to his descendants, God has promised it to him, and therefore it is a done deal. And in the midst of all this pagan idolatry, he sets up this altar to the one true and living God, and he worships there. You can imagine all the peoples around him saying, dude, who's this guy? What's he doing? Looks like a sacrifice, but where's the God? I mean... Where is it? Is it hiding? Is it underneath the is it underneath the temple? Is it hanging from a tree? Where's the God? In other words, where's the idol? What is the thing that he's offering to? What is the, the thing that he's worshiping? And if they were bothered to ask, Abraham would have said, I don't, I don't need some image. The God that I make is invincible. He is unseeable. He is the, the one true God who has made all things in heaven and on earth. And all of these other little things that you can see and touch that you make with your own hands, they are false gods who offer false hope. I used to worship them, but now I don't anymore. That's the evidence that Abraham gives of his faith here. And this pattern of calling to cut from your past, to turn away from the sinfulness of your heart, and to trust in faith and follow the one true living God, that is what we see throughout the entire book of Genesis and even on into the rest of the Bible. Even as sinful humanity was on the rise, God called Noah to ignore the reviling those around him and year after year after year faithfully construct the ark that would save humanity. After calling Abraham... God continues to call his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, telling them, I want you, like your father Abraham, to be the instrument through which I will bring about my promises to him, the instrument through which I will bless the world. And even today, God is calling people to serve him. And in fact, the call of Abraham foreshadows the same call that Christ himself issues. Christ has come to me and find forgiveness of sins. Come to me and find life with God. But there's a cost. There's a cost. Jesus says in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What is Jesus saying? He says, yeah, come follow me, but break from your past. Don't, don't worry about today. Don't worry about this, that, and the other. Just renounce it. Turn away from your life of sin and follow me in faith. Several years ago, a man from a, a Sikh family in India, Sukhwat Singh Bhatia, went as a student to Dallas Theological Seminary. And while he was there, he shared of his conversion to Christ and how he knew after coming to Christ he needed to give up his Sikh identity by cutting his hair and shaving his beard. And you have to understand, for the Sikh, the Sikh man, a razor never touches his head his entire life. 
the hair that grows out of his skull as a baby that doesn't get wiped off you know, when he's rolling around in the crib, it's still growing to the day he dies. The hair that comes out on his chin in puberty is the same hair that keeps growing until he dies. It is what, part of what sets them apart as their Sikh identity and in the worship of their God. And yet this man, this man, he came to faith in Christ. He came to see the, the false religion, the idolatry of the Sikh way. And he says, I've got to cut with the past, literally. And yet he shared I was so afraid of the consequences of doing this because then everyone would know what was in my heart. What was he saying? He's saying simply this. When God calls me to faith in himself, it means I have to renounce everything. And it means I can't be some closet Christian. There's no such thing. There's such thing as a person who hides in the closet. There's someone who boldly goes out and says, I am a Christian now. And not because I'm better than anyone else, not because I'm some holier-than-thou Joe, I can't do the same kind of things I used to do. I can't live the same kind of ways I used to live. I can't believe the same kind of things I used to believe because God is calling me to something different. And our response in faith is always evidenced by a change of heart, a heart that is evidence, that, that is clearly committed in joyful faith for the promise of salvation in Christ. And the good thing is, the good thing is, just like with the call of Abraham, the call of Noah, the call of everybody, so when Christ issues His call, He says, give up everything. But remember, what you give up will be returned to you in even greater ways. Luke 18 says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Whatever you give up for God, you get back in spades. And you get back in more glorious and beautiful ways than you possibly could have imagined. The third thing that we see here is covenant, the theme of covenant. When God calls Abraham to follow him, it's in the context of a covenant. In the Bible, a covenant is a promise or a collection of promises that God makes to a group or an individual. And yet they're more than promises because God is the one who is making them. When it comes down to, I mean, we all make promises, right? And when it comes down to a promise, it comes down to two things, character and ability. Okay, what do I mean by that? It means you may know my character as a pretty faithful guy. So I make a promise to you and you can say I have a reasonable amount of certainty he's going to keep his word. He will be faithful to his promise. But then there's also ability. What if I'm a faithful guy, I keep my promises, but I make a promise I literally just can't keep. I tell someone struggling financially, don't worry about it. The next two days I'm going to go out, I'm going to earn a million dollars, and you're going to be, have all your bills taken care of. Well, unless I turn to a life of crime, how more am I pulling that off, right? I mean, it's just, just not going to ha- I don't have the ability to do it. And yet with God, those two things are not a problem. He is the Lord. He's the Son. He's created everything. If all things that exist come from just His mouth, speaking them into existence, how does He not then have power over them? And faithfulness? Over and over and over again, God shows Himself to be faithful to His promises. So when God enters into a covenant, it's more than just a promise. It is a solemn oath of a promise that God determines will be fulfilled because it's rooted in His sovereignty. He makes the promise. He will keep it according to His will. It's rooted in His faithfulness. He will fulfill the promise forever and it's rooted in God's grace because whenever God makes a covenant, it's not with people who deserve it. It's with people He wants to show mercy and love on. And so the covenant that He enters into with Abraham is not dependent on Abraham. It's dependent upon God. 
And, and we see this, don't we? In the next few chapters, Abraham does some pretty stupid things because he, he, his faith wavers and he threatens the covenant. And yet God, keeps, God swoops in and he rescues him every time. He preserves the covenant because he has said he is going to do it. And in Genesis, we've already seen two covenants. First, God has created Adam and Eve in the context of covenant. He said, I have created you. I have made all things. I have given you them as a, literally a footstool under you that you were to rule and to reign and to care over. Therefore, worship and serve me alone and obey my voice. That's the covenant of creation or the Adamic covenant. And then later, after humanity sinned, God makes a covenant again with humanity, this time through Noah. And he takes the rainbow and he says, from now on, every time you see that rainbow, that will be a sign for you that I will keep my covenant promises. I will never again flood the earth in such a way that it will be destroyed. But more than that, just like I told Adam and Eve, so now Noah, through you and through your family, repopulate and subdue the earth and do it in this way and worship in obedience to me. I've saved you, now serve me. And so now God is about to enter into a covenant with Abraham. Now the covenant is not fully cut, officially entered into until chapter 15. Here in chapter 12, in his call, God is telling Abraham, this is what the covenant's going to be about. And so here we see again two things. First, the Lord's promise. The Lord's promise. The Lord saves Abraham from his idolatry that would ultimately end in his eternal destruction in hell. He rescues him out of that by revealing himself to him. And he says, now that I've done this for you, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, people divide these up a little bit differently, but I see here five promises that God makes to Abraham. First, the Lord, makes, the Lord promises to make him a great nation. Now, that right there, if you're reading, again, Genesis, and you finish chapter 11, you hit chapter 12, a little bell should go, ding, 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 ding. Problem. Problem, because you read this, and Moses already said that Abraham only has one wife, that wife's name is Sarai, and she is barren and without child. What does that mean? Moses wants you to understand, she's not just barren, she's not just incapable of having children, she's not yet had any children. It's not like it was secondary infertility, where they had a kid first the first time, were great, and now they can't have any more. Nothing. She's not having any kids, ever. And yet God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you so many descendants, they will number as if they are a nation in and of themselves. And so you read that and you say, God's got to be the one who's going to do it. God's got to be the one who's going to keep that covenantal promise. It will come by his power. Second, God promises to bless Abraham with a great name. Unlike those at Babel who sought to acquire a great name for themselves, who sought to, in, in a real sense, steal it from God, God scattered them and now he shows he is the one who makes one great and casts others down. He will make Abraham's name so great, in fact, that he will turn to be a blessing to others. Third, there is the promise of protection that we've already talked about a little bit. God promises to safeguard the fulfillment of the promises. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Again, just a few chapters from now, Abraham is going into Egypt. And he looks at Sarah and says, man, you're so beautiful. They're, they're, they're going to they're find out you're my wife. They're going to kill me, and they're going to take you for yourself. And, and he's worried about this. And they go, and they, they have an audience with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, man... Who is this beautiful woman? Who is this? Is coming with you, Abraham? And he's, he's like, uh, you know, he's thinking of the sword across the neck. He says, that's my sister. That's, that's my sister. Great. 
I want her for my harem. Abraham says, oh, no. What's going what's to happen? What's, what's going to happen? Well, guess what? God steps in and says, Abraham, you doofus. What are you doing? Why would you, why would you lie like that? Don't you believe me? And before, before Pharaoh can violate Sarah and break that, that fidelity of the marriage covenant, guess what? He comes to Abraham and he says, what, what's the deal? We're, we're all covered in swords, a plague on, 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 the, on, the, on the whole house. What's happened? Well, I lied and said that she was my sister. She's really my wife. Why would you do this? Take her and get out of here that the Lord may restore us. What happened there? God protected the covenant. Those that would be a, a threat to it were cursed by God. And all those who would support it were blessed by God. Fourth, he promises that in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is making a covenant here with only one man. And yet through that man, he is going to be, be the means by which God will pour out his gracious blessing on all the peoples of the earth. And in just a few minutes, we're going to see ultimately that comes through Christ. Finally, after Abraham leaves his country and kindred and goes off to the land that God promised to show him, he is told, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants so great, but they're not going to be homeless. They're not going to be spread out over all the other nations. They will have their own land in which to dwell. The Lord promises these things to Abraham. And what we see ultimately is that in making these promises, he is blessing all of humanity. This is the last thing that we see under, and it's the second point under the theme of covenant. We see humanity's blessing, humanity's blessing. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is important not just <clears throat> to him or to the Jewish people that come as his physical descendants. It's important to all of humanity because this covenant is coming built on the promise he has already made to Adam and Eve after their sin. You remember in the midst of his judgment against their rebellion, he promised salvation would come through one of their descendants. This descendant would defeat the serpent and do away with sin forever. And now God is showing to us, who has the clarity to see because we have all of the scriptures, that he is showing now more specifically, this is how this descendant is going to come. It's not through any other line, but the line of Abraham. He will come from Eve through Abraham's line, he will be a descendant of him. And so here this covenant is building on the promises, the promise of a redeemer from Genesis chapter 3. And so now all of humanity has a vested interest in this covenant with Abraham. If that covenant fails, then all of redemption fails. All of salvation history fails. You and I are not here worshiping the risen Christ because everything would have failed. And from the beginning here until we reach the end of the book, God shows himself to be faithful to his promises. He delivers Abraham despite his wavering faith and keeps the covenant secure. He supernaturally provides barren Sarah with a son with Abraham. And after Abraham dies, that same son Isaac becomes the bearer of the promises. Isaac in turn has two sons. And in order to show God's sovereign grace, the younger son, Jacob, is chosen to be the promise bearer. And from Jacob's 12 sons, one of the, the youngest, Joseph, becomes the means by which God saves all of that family from the threat of famine. Again and again and again throughout Genesis, we see God working to ensure His covenantal promises to His people, displaying grace, redeeming, and blessing sinners. Again, we get to the New Testament, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. The words actually, amen, amen. 
All the promises of God are amen in Christ. When you say amen, and I wish you'd say it more. I know I teach about that a lot. But when, when you say that, what does that mean? That means you're saying, yes, that's right, it's true. Say it again, right? Amen. Thank you. Hey, there you go. And what, what is Paul saying? Every promise that God has uttered when Christ comes is the divine amen on all those promises. That now this is the thing that they are pointing to. They have all been fulfilled perfectly and finally in the revelation of His Son, Christ. And so Christ has come as the promised one who would redeem all of humanity and in fact all of creation from the curse of the fall. Christ has come as that descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. He is the fountainhead. That Abraham's physical descendants might not just be a great nation, but that all of his spiritual descendants now would be a great nation. You say, what does that mean? Paul simply says this. Through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the promise. And what Paul argues is, it's not offsprings, it's offspring, it's Christ. And he says, if you belong to Christ, if you look to Christ in faith as your Savior and follow Him as Lord, now you are part of the fulfillment of that promise. You are heirs according to the promise given to Abraham. You are part of His spiritual descendants. And so we see again that everything comes together in Christ. All of the plan throughout God's history is working towards its fulfillment in Him. And so now today, you say, well, what does all this mean for us today? It's simply this. If everything has come together in Christ, then what is the call for us to do but to hear the good news of the gospel that God saves sinners in Christ and we respond to that call. We respond to that call by acknowledging that God is our creator and he alone deserves that we be worshiped as Lord of our lives. Instead of running in rebellion away from him, we flee to him in joyful and humble submission. But more than just Lord, we also trust him as the Savior, the one who redeems us from sin. And we can have confidence that this salvation will come to us because of his track record, his past faithfulness to keep his covenant promises to men like Adam and Noah. Noah and Abraham and that all of these things have now been fulfilled in Christ. Genesis shows us the beginning of all things and lays the framework, the foundation to help us understand the end of all things. And for us today, moving very quickly towards that end of all things is God. The one who began time will also wrap it up and usher in all of eternity with all of humanity either going into his joyful presence redeemed from their sins are being justly condemned forever in hell. This morning, we stand with God issuing the call to us just as he did to Abraham. Turn away from your old life and trust in me. And whether that's a Christian who continually, more and more every day, as Paul says, nails our sins to death by the grace that God gives us, or for the very first time, we find ourselves leaving all of our false worship all of our false idols, and worshiping the risen Christ. Today is the day to answer God's call as His created people through the covenant. Let's pray.